1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is John Heilbronn. John is Professor of History and Vice-Chancellor Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. He has written a huge number of books and award-winning materials, medal-winning materials, on the history of science and particularly the history of physics. And today we're talking to John about his new book, The Ghost of Galileo, in a forgotten painting from the English Civil War a book just published by Oxford University Press. John, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Clothurn. It's great to have you here today and to talk about this book, which is really extraordinary, as I think we're going to see in our conversation over the next 30 minutes or so. But before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps some of your previous publications? I am
0: a historian. I have been trying to become a historian. I began in physics. And so the easiest thing for me at the beginning of my uh, career was to study the history of science, write about the history of physics. And uh, that I have done for something on the order of 50 years. But uh, I've always had a desire to uh, enlarge the scope of that work and to situate uh, the development of science in the wider society as particularly the institutions that support it and gradually that has led me into uh, explorations into ever wider bits of history and so i was delighted to uh, be able to find a uh, an object a painting in the case before us uh, that enabled me to uh, develop uh, wider Uh, interests, and uh, in fact, to romp all over, uh, in this particular case, uh, early modern English history, of which I was by no means uh, an expert when I began. Although I knew something about Galileo, since I had uh, written a biography of Galileo And in that connection, the serendipity of discovering the painting, which is the subject of this book, The Ghost of Galileo, uh, I was able to recognize uh, at least the problem, if not the answer, to the puzzle that uh, is embedded in this painting. Perhaps I should describe the painting to you uh, in order that, uh, or anyway to our audience, in order that they can follow. Uh, What uh, is at stake? Well, the painting is hanging in a stately house in Dorset called Kingston Lacey. It's been hanging there for 300 plus years. Uh, It consists of uh, two sitters and a number of props. Uh, The sitters are a young, melancholy, adolescent uh, kid and uh, his tutor and physician. boy's name is John Banks, and the physician's name is Maurice Williams. Uh, neither one of them known to history very well, but I hope to have corrected that in some small measure. On the uh, table near them is a telescope and a globe, both standard props in the period. but there's something quite unusual there as well, which is an open book open to the frontispiece but no title no author's name just three ghostly figures impressionistically uh, rendered Uh, and if you have just written the biography of galileo you know immediately what that book is which is a dialogue on the two chief world systems as it's known in english uh, which is the book that got him in trouble with the inquisition so naturally to me Uh, looking for ways to enlarge my views, the question what that book was doing in that painting became uh, a quest. And so I went on to explore what I thought might be places where an answer would be forthcoming.
1: Mm. Now, the, the result of that study, John, has been a really magnificent book of around 500 pages, beautifully illustrated, copiously argued drawing on all kinds of contexts uh, and you, you describe it in the beginning uh, the quest almost as an anti- Sherlock Holmes quest it's it's virtually impossible isn't it in such a multifaceted context to, to eliminate what doesn't matter but it's it's as you show us it's, it's certainly possible to show what does matter and um the, the book is just full of these uh, extraordinary, Insights. Now, of course, in your previous writing, you've ranged from the 17th, 18th through to the 20th centuries. And you know that, that breadth of approach is something you bring to this project as well. Why did you find you needed to, to bring that breadth of approach to this project? Uh, well, the first
0: problem course, is audience. If you want to explain an image uh, that you claim to be characteristic of the period or meaningful for those who looked at it, uh, you have to know who these people might be. And so uh, the search began in all sorts of uh, places uh, in the uh, Standard literature, of course, in obvious places like almanacs, in plays, in masks, uh, political discourse, uh, poetry, anything was grist for my uh, mill. And I found that in doing that, uh, my work on other periods was quite useful because I could see things that uh, might Places to look that might not have occurred to me if I hadn't been fooling around for a good deal of time in archives uh, uh, pertaining to more modern topics. In fact, I found it useful in general uh, to have two projects going, one sort of early modern and one um, late modern or even recent, uh, in order to get that uh, perspective that is so difficult to achieve in which we historians, of course, claim is our uh, great asset. Uh, uh, So there is supposed to be some connection, um, but only methodological. Uh, Although I did in a special study I did follow up the image of Galileo from the time of the 17th century. And incidentally, I think it's the case that this image in this painting is the first use, or should we say exploitation, of Galileo uh, in an image outside of uh, portraiture. But then that just has developed uh, over the centuries. And nowadays, you find Galileo uh, in many places somewhere you would expect to find them in advertisements for salami and wine and whatnot, other places much subtler. And some of those I uh, mentioned in, in the book. So knowing the later history of the image made it easier to look for places where I might find it uh, appreciated in early modern times.
1: Mm. Now, the, the book, as I say, is, um, I think, as I mentioned, in some of my um, off-recording off remarks is, a very modestly titled encyclopedia but it, but it's incredibly capacious there is so much in here and one of the things that's most rewarding i think about this book is the way in which it drops this painting into a very complicated and broad early modern discussion about science and about the, the appropriate limitations of human knowledge sources of human knowledge and the conclusions that can be drawn therefrom well, just very briefly john what what, what is the the broader scientific debate that swirls around this painting that helps us understand it?
0: Well, of course, there is the first, we should mention the narrower scientific debate. The narrower one being about cosmology, about the world of about the universe, uh, and uh, in its uh, typical uh, uh, form it has to do with cosmic geometry. Does the sun go around the earth? Does the earth go around the sun? And so on. Uh, that is uh, question the legitimacy of which was uh, argued uh during this period but by the time of our painting in england it's pretty much settled that the earth goes round the sun uh, that's the story but the bigger one the bigger story in which this is, imbe- is embedded is the question whether truth is available to the puny human mind uh, and, uh, you know, it, it has great relevance today with our uh, fake news and whatnot. How do you know what's true and what are the tests you should bring towards it? And uh, in one guise, uh, Galileo's significance for the period is that he did indeed believe that with respect to a certain range of uh, phenomena, problems, whatnot, the human mind can indeed arrive at truth. In fact, he said in one celebrated passage that got in, into a lot of trouble that with respect to some things, he had geometrical theorems in mind. The human mind has just as great a perception as God. God knows a whole lot of more theorems than we do, and he knows them all at once, and we have to work them out step by step. But the quality of knowledge, once we have a secure, firm grasp of a theorem, is just as great as the divine. Okay. Uh, Other people challenged that and uh, could point to many reasons to believe that we can never be certain about anything. And that was one of the uh, most uh, uh, difficult uh, uh, obstacles that faced Galileo and people who wished to find ways to talk about history and uh, physical science and whatnot that had some security against that. You had people who unfortunately included Pope Urban VIII, uh, who felt that uh, the unaided human mind just cannot attain truth. And if you don't find it in scripture or another revelation, why uh, there's no reason to prefer one view to another often. (laughs) So, that, to my mind, is, the, uh, is just a really big question, and it doesn't go away. As I say, we, we're faced with this very serious problem now as to what should be grounds of true belief,
1: or even reasonable belief. <clears throat> and of course, this um, just as your answer um, draws down these religious contexts, contexts of religious debate, so too this is something which continues today as well. But I think one of the most fascinating things for me about the book was the way in which you reconstructed the religious debates of the period, not just Protestant versus Catholic um, and, and of course, broader um, Christian versus non-Christian debates as well, but also debates within Protestantism, which you come to show are a very important context for understanding this work.
0: Yes, uh, the... Of course, it's no discovery to find out that the uh, religious scene in the early 17th century, it was full of rifts and cliffs and difficulties. Uh, And I tried to tease out the uh, religious uh, standing of the people in the painting. And I should say uh, that there are two other people associated with this painting besides the sitters, young John Banks, and uh, his tutor, uh, who turns out to be quite an interesting person in his own right. Uh, some of his uh, teachings, manuscripts, whatnot, are available at the uh, British Library, but have never, so far as I know, uh, been used before. But uh, the other two people are, of course, the painter, uh, whose name is anglicized as Francis Klein. He was born in Germany and came to england via denmark and italy so he had a lot of uh, uh, cosmopolitan experience during which he picked up lots of these uh uh, went through a good many uh, religious uh, backgrounds and and settings and so forth and uh, i believe had a considerable tolerance uh, for various forms of uh of, of worship uh and the other person that needs to be uh, mentioned is uh it's sir john banks the father of the boy in the picture and the man who almost certainly well let us say certainly within the width of our newly found uh, belief in truth uh, with the uh, the uh person who uh, commissioned the painting and who had a good deal to say about what went in it. He was a most interesting figure, and in fact, I would think, uh, in in retrospect, he is the, the thread on which much of the uh, wider discussion is based he was a, a lawyer who rose to the position of chief justice of common pleas and a member of the privy council uh, during the uh, uh, early days of the uh, english civil war or just before the english civil war and was uh, had to, was able to talk to the king Charles the uh, First, for a time, uh, and uh, he also was a voice of moderation. And I give reasons to be- uh, believe that uh, his own experience of various religions, uh, and of course as a lawyer, his uh, n- n- taking up various causes and so on, made him also a uh, uh, tolerant uh, uh, for the time in religious matters. And so. Uh, they, this particular group, which was very, would be enlarged, uh, made a distinction between um, uh, Roman Catholics and Catholics. Those Catholics who were uh, attached to uh, the Pope and uh, were, according to the propaganda, willing to do anything he asked them to do, and others who seriously opposed the Pope. And some of Galileo's friends were in the, in the vanguard of the uh, opposition to the Pope. Some of them were uh, clerics, uh, friars, uh, uh, an archbishop, and they were all anti-Roman. So uh, that's another association uh, in the picture. And I'm glad you uh, you picked it up because it's, of course, uh, one of great importance in the period. You, you had to have a religious point of view to,
1: Mm. and you, you mentioned earlier on there John um the fact that this that, that the English Civil War is an important context for this painting as well how how, how does we'll, we'll get to the painting in more detail in, in a second but how, how does the English Civil War generally speaking inform the context for the production of this visual text well the
0: the, the, um, the the Charles I set up his court in uh, Oxford where the painting was made in uh, just after the battle of edge hill so at the very opening days of the hot civil war uh, and uh, all kinds of people uh, came to oxford including of course a great number of cavaliers and uh, the immediate context of uh, the uh, this double portrait uh, is the uh, desire of cavaliers to leave a picture of themselves before they got blown to bits on the uh, battlefield uh, it, uh Oxford was quite an exciting place for undergraduates at that time, though they were gradually diminishing in number uh, because of all the sorts of people around who would not ordinarily uh, uh, be available to undergraduates, military people, uh, soldiers, prostitutes, whatever. Uh, and so it was a heady time. And there were lots of uh, people of... Who had uh, intellectual interests or uh, who uh, came either, either old graduates coming back uh, uh, or uh, uh, doctors and whatnot needed f- for obvious reasons. And so there were many opportunities to enlarge your mind uh, if you didn't die of the plague or uh, some other disease on offer. Uh.
1: Now, w- within this heady contradictory, compelling world, um, we find Williams and young John Banks. So can, can you tell us a little bit about why why they're having their picture taken? Obviously, one of them is, is old enough to serve as a soldier, the other just still a, really a, a, a youth. So why, why, why a double subject for this portrait?
0: Well, that is truly a good question. <laughs> um, I think uh, the boy was quite ill. Uh, and, uh, so the inclusion of the doctor tutor, uh, made some sense from that perspective. And the fact that he was quite ill, uh, might have meant, uh, that, uh, might, might have inclined the, uh, father to uh, wish to have him painted in the circumstances in which he was, uh, at least at home, if not happy, because in the picture, the boy is most certainly not happy, uh you're right uh, immediate uh, warfare or participation in war was not in the cards for young john banks but he did recover and he went off to uh, tour the continent and come back uh, to claim his inheritance though only briefly he died quite quite young uh the doctor uh, besides being uh, uh tutor and physician and whatnot, uh, himself had a very interesting connection with the uh, royalty and anyway, with the court. He had been the physician to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, that is, uh, the Earl of Stratford, uh, famous in song and story, uh, among other reasons for having been executed by Bill of attainder, a sort of a judicial murder in which uh, uh, Charles, King Charles, had to uh, concur and after what should we say released from that obligation uh uh Dr Williams was free to take on other patients and uh he became briefly uh uh the queen's physician and then he looked after young john banks who was was uh because of his father's position was uh a, a boy of importance or possible importance uh so I also should say that uh, Williams had uh, Italian experience. He studied in Padua, which is a university in which Galileo taught. Uh, And I mentioned that the uh, Klein, the painter, had Italian experience. uh, So that uh, once they had decided that the pictorial program should include a reference to Galileo, maybe one or the other of them suggested it. I don't know. But uh, uh, the... uh, Coming together of the interests of the various parties is one of the uh, themes of the uh, of the book. Mm. That it happened in the Civil War, I think, uh, the most immediate uh, uh, re- the fact most immediately relevant for the timing is that Klein, the painter, had been the chief designer for the tapestry works that the uh, Charles I had acquired in. Uh, Mortlake. And when the Civil War came, of course, demand for high-end tapestries uh, went down and uh, Klein returned to what had been one of his uh, uh, stock uh, activities, which was painting and even portraiture and went to Oxford where everybody needed their portraits painted. So uh, that would be a reason for the timing and the place for the uh, painting.
1: Yeah, so it's Oxford, 1643-44. Um, you've got a, a medical doctor slash tutor standing looking rather anxiously at a melancholic uh, young man. Um, there's other props in the painting, there's curtains in the background, but there's a globe and uh, the tutor has his hand on the globe. Uh, and there, there's another scientific instrument and a couple of books. And at the very end of, of your book, you begin to speculate what the second book is, might be, but could could you just talk us through, John? Talk us through some of the props in that painting, the globe, um, the the whole culture of scientific apparatus, and, and then not only the Galileo book, but this other mysterious volume that's that's disguising half of its title page.
0: Yes, the um, the there's a telescope lying on the table. It looks almost like a rolled up nautical chart. And Klein was very well known for telling all sorts of stories in his paintings. And I think this, choosing that particular form of telescope, which confuses travel and investigation of the heavens and so on, was a a brilliant trick. And then he has a globe, which A terrestrial globe, which does represent travel in another, in his usual impressionistic sense, because you you have a feeling that there are continents on that globe, but you don't know exactly where the uh, the, what what is intended. And in Sir John Banks' will, he says that he wants young John Banks to travel uh, or to spend more time at the university. So travel was in the offing, and of course the uh, at, 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 after a time uh, the king's supporters decided it would be useful to leave England, so they had to find a place to go so travel was in the offing and in the Civil War context uh, the two books the one we have discussed, which is lying open it's held open by another big fat book now I do uh, allow myself one moment of speculation <laughs> which is what could be the idea of the other book. If you think that uh, all these props were there placed deliberately, you must think that that other book has some significance. And so I think I could make out, or my wife actually made out, so it was not a question of the observer disturbing the uh, (laughs) object observed, scratched H-I-S-T, or... Something like that on the spine. And so I suggest that a possibility would be the history of the Council of Trent by Paolo Sarpi. Paolo Sarpi was uh, reputed to be the smartest man in Europe. He was a great friend of Galileo's and uh, helped Galileo undoubtedly in the telescopic observations that. Uh, the, the, first made galileo famous uh, and uh, sarpi's book the history of the council of trent is was the all-time anti-papal classic of the uh, 17th century and uh, it represents uh, the popes merely as uh, as princes with no interest whatsoever in religion. Uh, And uh, in fact, the last consideration that, uh, according to Sarpi, that ever came into the minds of any of the popes he ever knew uh, or wrote about was the interest of religion. Uh, So you have in that book the sort of anti-papal Catholicism Mm -hmm. writ large. Uh, Sarpi was wooed by... James I asked to come to England to spread his uh, message. He didn't, he didn't go among other reasons because he had <coughs> been the advisor to the Venetian state in its battles with the papacy and he knew where every Body was buried or actually drowned uh, in and around Venice, and I don't think the Venetians would have let him go uh, very readily. In any case, he he didn't leave, uh, and uh, he became the uh, object of uh, of assassination attempt by the uh, Holy See, uh, which he survived, and. His attack uh, injured his face. He wore a patch on it, and you can see him with his patch on his face in the Bodleian Library, where he makes one of the, uh, the row of uh, worthies that is in the upper reading room. And when I was writing some of this book, or actually doing the research for some of the book, here I was reading Sarpi under the guy under the gaze of a Sarpi, which gave a little frisson to the. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, John, it's it's a really it is a really remarkable book. It is an extraordinary book. I know I've used those words before, but it's it's hard to reach for an appropriate superlative. One of the most dazzling parts of the book is the the final passage, thirty or so pages, where you switch forms mm. in a very provocative way and reconstruct a dialogue, a fictional, semi-fictional dialogue between three of your characters, and yeah. you, you use this to pull together some of the big arguments of the book and to do the big reveal about the, the, the identity of the <laughs> second the second book on the table. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why you made that move, why you chose to work in that form at that point in uh, The Ghost of Galileo and what, what the implications of that might be? Well, as, as you mentioned,
0: I couldn't do this in the form of a Sherlock Holmes uh, novel or story because... <clears throat> I don't have a univocal answer, and it's not possible to have one, I think, when the fundamental question is who would be interested in this painting and why and what would they have seen in it. So I had many different possibilities. Well, perhaps, let us say a half a dozen plausible ones. And I thought that the best way in which I could uh, lay them out would be to have them come up... In discussion among the three principals, so the painter and the two sitters who get together, this is fictional, ten years after the painting was made, and uh the boy has grown up he has been on the grand tour uh, the uh, doctor has reached the pinnacle of his career. Uh, Klein has turned to uh, book illustration and uh widened his acquaintance with uh, life in general and so uh they have a certain perspective on what they had done but they and they they don't quite remember entirely what was at stake but they have various recollections of what sir john had wanted and so on and so on and so i developed that and they let each of them uh, make various statements about his feeling of, of the importance of the galilean image in the book uh, the only constraint being, or the main constraint being, that they cannot get out of the characters that I gave them during the uh, historical part of the book. I took from Galileo the deep lesson that if you want to talk about anything you please, the way to do it is to write a dialogue. <laughs> and uh, that also gives you, as Galileo made clear, uh, the leeway uh, to say things that you may not entirely believe. Or that you cannot demonstrate and so that is those are some of the reasons i chose the dialogue form but perhaps the most important is that as i was trying to figure out how to bring this thing to a close these three guys were in my head and they just dictated the dialogue so i had no choice but to write it down
1: <laughs> spoken like a true physicist <laughs> Well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and it's been wonderful to talk about this new book, The Ghost of Galileo in a Forgotten Painting from the English Civil War, just published by Oxford University Press. But before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Ah, yes.
0: uh, uh, This year has been a very good year to work on books. And uh, I just finished, uh, in fact, gave to the press uh, a book, about a guy who is somewhat better known than, uh, the Banks and, uh, Dr. Williams called Bianchini, Francesco Bianchini, who was, uh, the right-hand man of a later Pope Clement XI, the cultural czar of Rome, the best astronomer at his, for his time in Italy, the creator of one of the great monuments in Rome, the, uh, Meridian line in the Church of Santa Maria degli Angeli, etc., uh, etc. Et he was also a spy, a papal agent, the uh, great friend of the uh, so-called James the Third, the old pretender, uh, the uh, friend of uh, the Queen, uh, 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 and uh, so there is very again. There's a whole lot of story there, and. Uh, that's what I developed So the uh, various stories around Bianchini, which are gives you an insight into the uh, culture of Rome at the time and into lots and lots of other things. Did I say he was an antiquarian, an archaeologist, a, uh, a, a, a uh, man of various literatures, and so on and so on? Anyway, a jack-of-all-trades uh, and uh, a very amusing and interesting character. Hmm. Jack of he all, never became a
1: priest. A jack of all trades and a friend of Jacobites. Uh, very good. That sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful, John. Um, but for now, thanks for thanks for writing this book, The Ghost of Galileo, and thanks for sharing your time with us this morning by coming on to the show to talk about it. It's
0: for me to thank you, Crawford. <laughs>
1: right. Well, thank you. Well, thanks to everyone else for listening in today, too. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.